What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software to help the self-employed. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. Set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four times faster. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial at freshbooks.com SP and enter Smart People Podcast in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com SP and enter Smart People Podcast. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, and let's get on with it. It's going to be quick all the way around. Fairly quick episode for you and a quick intro. But before we get into it, I got to talk to you about something. Assuming you listen to this in the next couple of weeks, it's almost Christmas. And you know what that means? It means you can support us. We know everyone does their Christmas shopping on Amazon these days. Who can blame us? We don't have to go to stores. It's amazing. So this time, just type in smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon, and anything you buy, we get a little kickback, no cost to you. It's that simple. It's their affiliate program. So you just go smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon, buy all your Christmas stuff. I don't even know if I can say Christmas anymore. Holiday? Who knows? Buy that stuff. And know that not only are you giving the gift of happiness to someone, but you're giving the gift of money to us. Okay, let's get on with it. Speaking of money, let me ask you, have you ever thought about where your money spends the night? What I mean by that is we keep our money in all types of places. Hopefully not under your mattress, because let's be honest, it's not the Great Depression anymore, but maybe in a bank 
in a retirement fund, a 401k, a Roth IRA. Maybe you have a pension, the stock market. Who knows? The point is you have money out there and that money is being used for things. But what are those things? How would you feel if your money right now is being invested in destroying the planet or in ruining children's dreams? I don't know what that would be, but I'm just saying it's possible. And that's kind of at the core of what our episode is. You see, we are all massive investors. As you'll hear this week, you're actually worth a lot more money than you think. And that money has a voice. So why don't we use that money to invest in things we believe in, to support those things that we want to see grow and thrive to change the world for the better? Assuming that's what you want. Now, yes, of course, we all want an ROI. We want that return on investment. And don't worry, we cover that this episode. So that's it, short and simple. Who are we talking to this week? We are talking to the expert on this topic, which by the way is called impact investment. And that expert is Morgan Simon. Morgan is a widely recognized leader in impact investment who builds bridges between finance and social justice. Over the past 17 years, she has influenced over $150 billion in capital. She currently co-leads the Candide Group and is also co-founder and chair of the nonprofit Transform Finance. And of course, she is the author of the brand new book called Real Impact, The New Economics of Social Change. So if you want to do good in the world but have no idea where to start, listen to this episode, figure out where your money is, and put it to good use. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Come on over, check us out, sign up for the newsletter, and thanks for tuning in. Enjoy this episode with Morgan Simon. Morgan, thank you so much for standing in the rain in San Francisco just to be on the podcast. means a lot. I have to say that is an, an accurate statement. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about impact investing. But first, can you explain to us the problem that we're solving for in the first place? Sure. So I think there's there's two main problems that I'd say we're solving through impact investment, which are both personal and then systemic. So on the personal level, I think a lot of us have been increasingly thoughtful about our choices as consumers and how we want our money to express our values. So whether it's the moral crisis that we go through every time that we're in the egg aisle and sort of choosing between the cage-free, organic, et cetera, um, to, to any number of, of ethical choices we may make in our consumption, when we go to take money out of the ATM to make those purchases, we typically have no idea where our money spent the night and that it's often supporting things like fossil fuels or private prisons that are completely against the value sets that we express in other areas of our life. So we sometimes refer to that as the ick factor, that it just feels icky to be so incongruous um, in the way that our money is working in the world. So impact investment is the opportunity to invest your money in a way that aligns with your values, whether it's in the context of banking or public equities or other financial products. And then on a systems change level, a major problem we're facing is that we have this tiny, tiny portion of the economy, philanthropy, um, that's focused on making social change, while the rest of the economy is typically working at cross purposes, right? That it's paying people low wages, it's putting chemicals into our food, it's doing lots of things that might make money in the short term, but are really bad for long term 
economic development. So the opportunity with impact investment is to put that into alignment and make sure that the entire economy is really working for the welfare of everyone. Well, I think you did a pretty good job of summing up what I believe is wrong with this world, especially when you were talking about our decisions making eggs and how I will stand and labor over that for five minutes. But you're right. I have no idea what else goes on behind the scenes. So, you know, when I think that this title kind of impact investment, I think about purposefully investing my money somewhere. But it sounds like what you're talking is more about when we kind of let others do the investing for us or with our assets, what that's going to support. Is that correct? Um, it's both. So I think one one major problem, both for individuals and then for um, larger institutions, whether it's pension funds or foundations, governments, that once we've handed over money to a financial advisor, we act like it's not ours anymore. Right? We sort of let other people make decisions and forget that it's still fundamentally our money. Um, and that in the case of things like pension funds, it's representing a very specific set of um, constituents and wanting to really reflect their values. So I think there's the opportunity to really take ownership of our money, to instruct advisors to say, hey, I really care about the social and environmental impact of my investments. And, you know, what can you do? You do work for me. Right. Um, and sometimes that can be expressed in terms of what we don't invest in. But I think the opportunity, particularly with impact investment, is to really think proactively about how can I really support the stuff that I care about so that I'm excited every time I look at my investment portfolio to be looking at renewable energy, to be looking at companies that are doing great by their employees and, and really creating wonderful products for the world. You know, the thing about investing at its core, it's drilled into us that it's about return on investment, right? It's about the, the bottom line. And I think today with this scarcity mindset that so many people have, it's being echoed throughout the world. I mean, it sounds like, you know, I want to do good, but more importantly than that, I want to have enough money to survive into my 90s and things like that. You know, how do you convince people that this is a worthwhile investment, not just a sounds good investment? Sure. So one thing that was really pertinent in what you said is that you want to retire at 90 or let's say, you know, 80 to 90, right? However long you <laughs> might live. You're not trying to retire next quarter, right? And the financial system that's often really structured around thinking about quarterly returns or what's happening in the next cycle um, is not really thinking in that long-term way. So one of the um, reports that came out recently that was pretty interesting from, um, from one of the major fossil fuel companies, I don't want to misquote here, um, was that they only have enough oil reserves for the next 10 years, right? So if you're thinking about long-term financial investing, is that really the best option right, to support a company that doesn't know what it's going to do after 10 years? Um, and another kind of interesting fact in looking at the long term, a study from Harvard Business Review uh, took a cohort of companies over 18 years, high sustainability and low sustainability cohorts, and found that the high sustainability companies had over twice the market cap in that period and 4% productivity gains a year. And there's very little outside of the computer you know, that's ever achieved that sort of productivity gain in society. So I think what's interesting is that even from a financial perspective, we've been seeing that in the long term, companies with strong social and environmental practices tend to win. And that's even if you didn't care um, about progressive change, right? Even if you just were looking at the bottom line, it's really a strong opportunity. If, if that's the case, and I'm not saying it's not, I'm just really curious. If that is the case and in that the companies that do good do good, won't 
that take care of itself? I mean, isn't that the economist mentality that it will solve itself via the market? I think that's on an assumption of perfect markets, which don't exist, right? I think it's been shown time and time again, and also knowing um, the amount of subsidization throughout markets that's kind of hidden um, is massive, right? And could certainly be driven towards more uh, positive change. Um, there's an adage in financial management, no one gets fired for uh, buying General Electric, right? That there's certain mm-hmm. incentives in place that kind of maintain the status quo, um, because it's not your fault if there's a market turn, um, but it is if you happen to, you know, get less than perfect returns on a social investment, right? So I think it's interesting to kind of rethink what's the long-term objective and how do we get there? And what's the type of creativity that that's going to take, knowing that markets uh, don't always uh, encourage that, that type of creativity? Yeah. And I mean, I think we've seen the imperfect market, right? I mean, we hold on to this ideal, but it's not really there. I think we've, we've danced around it a little bit, and I haven't even asked you, what is your kind of concise definition of impact investment? Sure. Uh, impact investment, I'd say, is the opportunity to align your values with your money across the asset classes. So to really take a systemic approach to portfolios um, that's taking the social and environmental value into account in portfolio construction. What do you find the norm is currently? What, what, are, what do you find when you're out there trying to move people's investments in this direction? What's the push or what are you up against? In, in general, I actually feel like it's a pretty efficient and joyous process, um, that it's been amazing to see the maturation of the sector over the last decade, that even just last year, $119 billion was invested in social uh, and environmental projects. Um, according to, to J.P. Morgan, it certainly could be more than that, but just in terms of some general surveys that have been done, um, it's pretty amazing that from cash to public equities to debt to pretty much any financial tool you can look at, there are now social and environmental options that have track record that really give people the opportunity to make strong returns. So I think, if anything, it's less about what are we pushing up against and more about um, how do we do more of this, right? There's so much great opportunity out there. What is some of that opportunity for those of us that really don't know this world? I mean, because like you said, right, we do from a consumer perspective, we've seen these shifts in what consumers are asking for. But in the investment perspective, many of us are very limited in our knowledge capabilities. That's why we outsource it. So what are the opportunities? So for consumers, there's increasingly a myriad of options. So in looking at cash, a lot of people in the wake of Standing Rock chose to break up with their bank and look at local community banks or community development financial institutions where they could be putting their money. So that's one thing that's a very easy step. Um, There's a number of mutual funds that take social and environmental work into account. Um, In general, in my book, Real Impact, I give four steps for how people can clean up their personal portfolios, 20 minutes each. And it's all educational information, not financial advice. Um, And it's always best to talk with your financial advisor of what's best for you. But at least it gives people a starting place of where to enter in the conversation. And then the other piece that I think is critical um, is for everyday citizens to really think about um, where their sources of power are. So I'd like to say, you know, we're all accidental billionaires one way or another. It may be that your alma mater is sitting on a billion dollar endowment and that every time that they ask you to donate, you can write back saying, I'm so happy to support this institution, but where is my money being invested? 
or if I'm a teacher and I'm part of a pension fund. You know, there's so many different ways that we connect to wealth, whether or not we have it. And just remembering that those are resources that represent you and that you have an opportunity to be a positive voice in the impact of those resources on the world. I think about my footprint or my abilities being so minimal. And I'd imagine as you talk to the general public, not the experts and the wealthy, but the general public, they feel like that, right? It's like, yeah, that's fine. But when I'm talking a few thousand dollars, what's going to move the needle? What do you say when you hear that, that rebuttal or just that extra work? I would say that we give up our power too easily, right? That um, even in the context of uh, philanthropy, you know, most charity in the U.S. is actually from individuals. So you might think you're only giving 25 or $50 here or there. What kind of dent is that going to make? But it's actually the majority, right, of philanthropic funding that, that happens. And similarly, the majority of assets is actually with people. We're just so dispersed, right, that we don't think about that as collective power that we have over the financial system. And it goes back to remembering, you know, if you have an advisor, they work for you, right? It's still your money. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunities where we kind of give up that power a bit too easily. And that, you know, like I mentioned, I think it can be very intimidating sometimes to switch to a new financial institution, right? That um, if we've been used to a certain bank since childhood. So, for instance, I had been in a big name bank and I actually um, put verbatim the conversation in the book that I had with the bank in terms of how I broke up with my bank. Because um, it really <laughs> took about two and a half minutes, right? Hmm. Um, and then you wire your, uh, your money over to the new bank and it's done, right? <laughs> so I think some of it too is that um, we can sometimes turn off from finances that we have a lot of emotional um, baggage that's often unrecognized on, on how we feel about what our bank account balance is, right? Um, and I think that rather than kind of trying to ignore it, um, taking the opportunity to have it be a more positive force in our lives um, can really create a, a positive mind shift in how we feel about money. Mm. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Racing against the clock to wrap up projects, prepping for meetings later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to life as a freelancer. FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software to help the self-employed. It's redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and get paid quickly. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. Set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four times faster. See when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to all the guessing games. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial at freshbooks.com SP and enter Smart People Podcast in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com SP and enter Smart People Podcast. And now back to the episode. You know, you talk about in your book and you mentioned it in real impact, you, you talk about why you call it real impact and you break down what real is. And I, I was really interested going through that. One of the things you talk about is the harm of the current global economy. I was hoping you could really dive into that for us, like explain the things you've seen in all this research that the global economy, that the harm that it's, it is causing. Boy, how much time do you have? <laughs> well, we got about 30 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> um, I think that's a really important point. And it connects back to, you know, even when you talk about the point of investment being return on investment, let's uh, unpack that a bit, right? That it's not just about um, creating money, right? So money is a tool 
to create the things that we want, right? So money is a proxy essentially for security, health, and welfare of our families and loved ones, right? That's what we're trying to achieve when we amass wealth. And that means access to housing, access to food, access to beautiful environments to explore, access to clean air to, to keep us healthy. Um, so I think it's sometimes when we lose that holistic thinking about what wealth is, then our money winds up working at a very singular purpose to create more pieces of paper as opposed to create greater human and environmental welfare, right? So I think that's one piece to kind of, if we had a financial system that had a much more expanded definition of what it's trying to achieve, other than just narrowly focusing on transactions um, that are not focused on positive human welfare. Um, so one of the things that I found pretty interesting um, for recent hurricanes in Puerto Rico, um, there's been a lot of talk about how the electric lines have been down, right, and that this was just a terrible outcome of this, you know, act of God, right, this natural disaster. But really, 65% of the electrical lines were down in July, right, far before the hurricane. Wow. Um, and in large part because of the $9 billion in debt that the country has been carrying due to practices of hedge funds, right, who saw an opportunity to make some money to buy the debt at a couple cents on the dollar, right, and then be able to keep collecting the full payments. Um, and that that has meant that the country and its electrical authority can't get the financing that they need to make critical repairs, right? So in that case, you have a financial system that rather than supporting economic activity in a country, right, which is essentially what electricity does, it's completely hampering it. And yes, that creates some benefit for a few, but on a societal level as a whole is really catastrophic. Um, so just to, to give one more kind of example of then how asset owners think about this, um, one of the trustees of the New York Retirement Fund, um, former trustee Mike Musaraka, used to always say, you know, as a large asset owner, we own the whole market. And that means that there's no such thing as an externality, right? That if I try to push my environmental or human impact onto someone else, I'm going to feel it elsewhere, right? And therefore, I can't afford to do that as an asset owner. We have to think about the economy as a whole. We have to think about it as a driver of human environmental welfare and realize that if we try to eke financial value out of one corner of it, we're going to wreak havoc somewhere else. So I think that's at the crux um, where we struggle as a financial system to make sure that we're not just prioritizing short-term gain for a limited number of people at the expense of human welfare. Okay, the thing you said about Puerto Rico just pissed me off. I'm just going to be honest. Like Ever since you told me that story, I was just thinking... When can I just vent about this? Because I think that story really represents the dark side of capitalism. Wherever there's an edge, wherever there's money to be made, there'll be somebody there to exploit it. And it doesn't always lead to, quote unquote, efficiencies or whatever you want to call it. Because like you said, it mostly with these hedge funds, it mostly goes to a few lucky ones who are making uh, an incredible amount of money. How do we have a system that is set up that way. How have we not changed yet? We've seen what it's done when it came to the tech bubble, the housing bubble and the mortgage crisis. And, you know, before that, even how has this not changed? Well, so I want to throw it back to you. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned that you spend five minutes in the egg aisle, yeah. but you don't know where your money spent the night. Mm -hmm. You haven't taken those five minutes. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think in part it's because, you know, as complicated as cage free eggs are, I totally hear that. <laughs> um, we, we view finances as even more complicated. Right. And I think that's where we need to kind of unmask 
um, the industry to say, you know, enough with the acronyms and the fancy talk, but this is still our money as a society and it needs to work for us. And it needs to have thoughtful government regulation, um, really being careful around how that money is being managed and used. And it needs greater accountability to the public in terms of the impact it's creating in the world. Now, the thing is that given that a, a most consumers you know, reasonably do need to be concerned about, am I going to have enough money for my family tomorrow? Right. Sometimes it can feel like that's enough to manage mm-hmm. um, before even asking the deeper questions. Um, but I think it's one of those things where if on mass we just decide that we need a different economy, we can build it, right? And I think that's that's really the invitation that I was trying to create through Real Impact was the idea that we have so much money in society that could be working towards social change if we harnessed it in the right direction. And I actually really view that as something that's positive and exciting and accessible, and I want people to come along in that journey. Right. You're part of the conversation and you're really sparking it because- I mean, I'm sure. What do you feel the political implications of this are? Because let's be honest, right? I think most people would hear this, would would agree with the fact that, look, I don't make enough money and it's a struggle already. But of course, I'd want things to equal out. Right. But I feel like people and myself included just feel held down. Right. How are we going to go up against the, the Lehman Brothers or, you know, the whatever other large financial institution? So, so let's let's take a second, and maybe for you, if you don't mind, sure, um, yeah, to, no. to throw you in the fire. Do it. So, did you go to did you go to university? I did. Yep. Uh, what's your alma mater? Uh, James Madison in Virginia. And do you, do you have a sense of what their endowment is? No idea. Okay, we could it, probably. It's probably uh, fairly decent. I mean, it's not like Harvard, but it's probably okay. pretty good. So let's put it in like the five hundred million category. All right, sounds good. Um, and then uh, where do you bank? Oh, gosh. Everyone on this episode's going to hate me. <laughs> Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. Okay. <laughs> so that's another cover billion in assets. So so my point is that even just with two questions, you're, you're now a billionaire, right, in terms of your economic access, right? And then it becomes a question of in the same way that, you know, if you're happening to talk to them about um, how do I get my, you know, mobile checking oh, by the way, where did my money spend the night, Mm -hmm. right? That when consumers start asking questions and think about even something of how did mobile deposit come about, right? It's that they have these focus groups saying, what is it that consumers want? Um, They want convenience. They want more money, right? They want these different pieces. Um, There hasn't been a mass movement to say, we want our banking system to reflect our values. Oh, and also we're going to start voting in a way that reflects the economic value that we want placed in society. Um, so, you know, another um, in terms of terrible facts in the world um, that the amount of money that it takes to incarcerate someone for a year, you could have sent them to Harvard. Oh, my gosh. Right? I know. See, how do we fix that? You're just throwing problems at me and you're making me more angry. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's a big part of why, you know, even though we've we've talked a bit about problems on this episode, I really tried to make the book 25 percent problems, 75 percent solution. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Because I think. Um, we can really get bogged down in the problem and forget that there are these opportunities. So in terms of solutions, I think it's that, you know, we don't just vote every two years, right? And certainly that action is critically important for some of the policy changes for things like the school to prison pipeline. Um, But we vote every day with every dollar that we spend or invest. And it's to take that vote seriously all the time 
And I think that if we start to just have that consciousness and how we walk around in society, um, then things really start to shift. And then the other is knowing, you know, impact investment has been growing rapidly, right? JP Morgan is projecting it'll be over $2 billion by the end of the decade, um, that one in every $5 under institutional management, $8.72 trillion, right, is already in some type of social screen. It's also not enough to just check the box, you know, social, environmental, and walk away, right? That we still need to hold institutions accountable to make sure that the change is real. And I think that's the other element of real impact of knowing that we are in such a critical moment, climate change and otherwise, um, that we don't have time for gradual change, right? We need real transformative change in economic systems now, right? So it's up to us to really shift what institutions are doing and to hold them accountable for the work they're doing in the world. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Support for today's episode of Smart People Podcast comes from Health IQ. Health IQ believes that the best way to improve the health of the world is to celebrate the health conscious through social and financial rewards. So they use science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people, including runners, cyclists, strength trainers, vegans, and more. 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance. These savings are exclusive to Health IQ. Like saving money by being a good driver, Health IQ gets you lower rates on life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. After all, physically active people have a 34% lower risk of all-cause mortality, 56% lower risk of heart disease, and 22% decrease in cancer mortality compared to people who remain inactive. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com SPP. That's healthiq.com SPP to get your free quote. And now back to the episode. Yeah. And what you said right there is we don't have time. And and I agree with you. I mean, I, I was just listening to another podcast with a well-spoken and, and respected physicist, and he was just talking about climate change, and he was talking about our environment and the atmosphere and other planets and all this, basically saying how by the time we go, wow, I think we do need to do something like real everyone unites. That means hands down, it's far too late. And that's a terrifying thought. So it's that idea that we need to take the longer perspective and humans notoriously are terrible at that. And I think it goes back to even in the face of so many challenges, we just always have to try. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the human driving force. I, I remember one of my my dear friends, um, his son for a while, who I think was, was about five at the time. I was asking how things were going and he was saying one of the challenges he was having with his son was that when his son would try to do something and he would tell him, no, you can't do that, his son would look up in his face and say, daddy, try, <laughs> right? And like the worst thing you would ever want to tell a child is no. like, no, don't try, right? <laughs> Screw that trying. That's amazing. Um, and, it, and it just, I often feel like that child, right? Kind of looking out um, at the financial landscape and saying, hey, what, what if we tried? You know, mm -hmm. how, how crazy would that be? Um, but if we're really saying that we're fed up with the status quo, that we're open to really digging in and understanding how the system works and what are the opportunities to do it better, okay, what, what would it look like if we all took the extra five minutes to move our bank accounts? Like, wow, what if the banking system was actually supporting affordable housing, renewable energy, local business, right? How would that change the landscape of your community? Mm -hmm. um, 
And it really just doesn't take that much effort. So, so, you know, do we have the grand panacea yet? No. But if we all start asking the same questions and start even taking the little actions that we can, it absolutely makes a difference. You're reminding me so much of a previous guest we had on. Do you know who Kate Rayworth is by chance? I don't. Okay. You should check her out. She's in the, right. I believe she's in the UK, um, but she wrote a book called Donut Economics. And anyways, I, I, there's just similarities in the sense that we're raised to think like economics is this law, right? And we just abide by this law. But then people like you and her are breaking this down saying, well, what has this law gotten us? A lot of great things, but I think it's past its time and it's time to evolve, right? And that that's this conversation. And there's the things we can do that even as you said, are small and are needed. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember from a historical perspective, you know, there was a time when people thought the world was flat, right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that long ago. Um, and that we're so used to when we get born into a system of, you know, uh, sort of thinking that that's the only way that the world could be. Um, and I think part of what we're seeing in terms of the outcomes, right, natural disasters, climate change, inequality, et cetera, um, this one isn't working out so well, right? Mm. So how do we really move our creative energy um, into something better? And that's where I have to say, you know, as much as we might say, oh, the terrible financial system um, and all the terrible things the banks are doing, there are a lot of really smart and talented people in those institutions, right, that have figured out how to do some pretty major stuff, right? The fact you can get an orange from uh, California to Japan in, in a day is, is pretty incredible, right? Yeah. Um, but we haven't figured out how to make sure the planet will still exist. So the, the other piece I'm really hopeful about is if you got all of that creative energy within the financial world working to solve global problems, wow, like you would just unleash a tidal wave of positivity onto the universe. Um, so I think it's also kind of creating opportunities for activists and institutions to work together rather than always being enemies, but saying, what if we actually united towards a common agenda, um, which is making sure that all of our grandchildren are going to have a planet to inherit, right? Mm. Um, that that's the type of work that we could be doing together. That is, I think, the motivating factor. And once you have, like, now that I have a, a, a kid, I really think about, wow, like, because I, I go, you know what, I think I'll be okay in my lifetime. Like, I don't think climate change will kill me in 60 years, but it might really impact him. What, what I was just going to say, you know, going back to your cage-free eggs, you probably occasionally pay an extra dollar. Oh, I pay right? a lot. No, no, no. I pay a okay, lot pay of money for food. <laughs> like, it is absurd right. what I pay for food. Yeah. So I think that's the other that sometimes when people say, oh, well, then I'm only going to get, you know, 3.25% rather than 3.26% return on this. Okay. Like we make decisions all the time that are balancing out the different values that we have in the world. Mm. Right. So I think the other really important thing to question um, is whoever said that you need to make as much as possible, right. Of why, why is that necessarily the goal as opposed to the balancing mm. out of all your different interests, both short and long-term, right? Maybe giving up that 0.01% means that your child gets to stay alive, right? right? That's, I, I mean, I hate to put it in such stark terms, um, no, but, but I do think it's really important to reconsider. What are you actually trying to achieve as you build wealth? Right. No, I love that comparison between the consumer aspect and the investment aspect. And one of the things, again, getting back to this idea of real impact, you talk about charitable work and all of the downfalls of charity and how, 
you know, we, we really want to make sure that impact investment doesn't go down the same rabbit hole, if you will. And I was curious as to what those are. The downfalls of charity? Yes. Yeah. So I think the biggest element is just that it is a tiny drop in the bucket, that it's in this intense David and Goliath fight, right, between the limited amount of charity, which even, you know, at, at $400 billion, it's nothing to laugh at, right? It's, it's certainly a lot of money that goes into charitable donations. Um, but compared to the $196 trillion that circulates the economy every day, you, you just can't be surprised when you keep losing, right? Mm-hmm. That there's just, there's just no way. Um, so I think that charity does a couple things extremely well. It's very important for advocacy and organizing and particularly in changing policy. Um, and then also for disaster relief, right? That there's times where we're just the, the most needy, um, that there's just no other option. Um, but that otherwise, if you're able to have an economy that just takes care of people and the environment from the start, then there's no need to use charity to fix it, right? Um, that it's kind of like you keep, um, you know, pumping out cars and then you have a at the factory and then you have a guy at the end with a sledgehammer, right, who's just destroying them. Um, that there's just no way that you're, you're going to be able to get the progress that you need if the economy is working at cross purposes with your charitable purposes. Mm. One thing I wanted to cover while we had you was the work that you do, because I know it, it talks about you influence or have influenced 150 billion. And I was curious on what that means. Like, what is the aside from writing this book? This book is really, as I take it, your message to put into the world to the average person. But behind the scenes, the organizations you run or have run, how, how does this translate into your world? Sure. So I've been doing something related to impact investment for about 17 years now. Um, I started off as the founding executive director of the Responsible Endowments Coalition, um, which works with college and university endowments. Um, you know, they control on their own 400 billion across the country. Um, this is an organization that works on over 100 campuses nationwide and looking at how those college endowments could be moving towards more socially and environmentally responsible practices. Um, I then went on to be the founding CEO of Tonic, um, which is a a group of 200 global impact investors, about four and a half billion between them, um, that are looking to invest their money into social and environmental projects. And it was in my time there where I was looking at about 500 investment deals a year that I started to get really sad um, about some of what was happening in the impact investment sector of feeling that we were often settling for projects that were a little bit better, right? You know, bringing someone from seven to $8 an hour, two to $3 a day, but without addressing really the underlying structural and root causes um, that would make a difference. And that part of this was often because it, uh, these projects were happening very divorced from the actual communities they were intended to affect. Um, and I started to really think about how you could embrace more social justice values, the idea of nothing about us without us, and bring that into the finance world. Um, and I did two things. I uh, launched a nonprofit called Transform Finance alongside co-founder Andre Armeni, um, which is building a bridge between finance and social justice. So that organization hosts an investor network, about $2 billion between the members, um, who are really interested in, in supporting social justice work. And then also provides trainings to nonprofits and community organizations who either are interested in in using revenue generating projects to fund social movements or holding investments accountable that are coming into their neighborhoods. Um, 
So my other objective was to really show to the world that you could do this work at scale, that it wasn't just an idea about marrying finance and social justice, but that we could create real portfolios that are producing financial return while also supporting these values. Um, so I currently serve as managing director of Candide Group and, and co-founder alongside my partner, Anir Ben-Ami. Um, and we work with a small group of clients, um, families and foundations, so the Libra Foundation on behalf of members of the Pritzker family in moving um, their wealth to 100% impact investment across asset classes. Um, so that's where I really focus my time is on building portfolios and finding strategies to be able to do social and environmental investing across asset classes. Mm. Um, the book really came about because it was a critical time, I believe, in the industry, that it's starting to scale rapidly, that there's so many more opportunities for people to invest, and that it's getting increasingly difficult for people to really separate wheat from chaff of when is something actually impacting the world in a positive way and when is it just greenwashing. Um, so helping people understand the difference, helping people know what questions they would need to ask um, as they jump into the world of impact investment. Like you said, I mean, it's no small step. Obviously, all the money that you're dealing with and helping move into these sectors and these investments will hopefully be part of the tidal wave. Um, I think it's necessary. And I know that you're still standing out in the rain and you're in a you're you're at a conference. So I appreciate these. Can, can you really, hear it? No, no. <laughs> it's actually really pouring right now. Oh, is it? No, I just I, I thought this was such a great message to get into the world and again, the book is Real Impact, The New Economics of Social Change. I just wanted to give you one last minute to let us know anywhere else we should look for you, read, you know, follow you, any of that good stuff. Thank you. Well, I am um, on Twitter as Morgan Simon one um, And then there's also a Facebook group for Real Impact. Um, I contribute in media generally. Uh, and I think the easiest way to keep track of that is on morgansimon.com and then a number of events, both domestic and international. Um, and I would also um, suggest people check out transformfinance.org if they're interested as investors of looking at how to join within a community that's really social justice focused, or if you're part of any organization or, or um, movement uh, that's looking at earn revenue as a social change strategy, um, we actually have a training coming up December 8th through 10th in New York, and we'll be happy to have you there. Fantastic. Well, again, Morgan, thank you so much. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Morgan Simon. Morgan's book, Real Impact, The New Economics of Social Change, can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you decide to purchase the book featured on the show, please do so through the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. All purchases you make through that link come at no extra cost to you, and it greatly helps support the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us messages on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. To stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and over there you can sign up for the newsletter if you're interested. All right, that's it for us this week. Please stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast. Hit that subscribe button or just tell a friend about the show. 
We've got some great interviews coming up and we will see you all next episode.